Brad Klein here for TurfNet Renovation Report. And our conversation today is with golf course architect and restoration specialist, Andrew Green. And I want to thank our sponsors for this conversation, Golf Preservation, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. Andrew, welcome to a Renovation Report. Great to oh, have you here. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. So um, I kind of stumbled onto your work a few years ago. I was giving a talk. I think it was Country Club of York. And uh, they said, we hired this guy, Andrew Green. I said, who is he? And um, it wasn't long before I was looking at your work completed at Inverness, at Oak Hill, at Congressional. Um, uh, and actually, just last week, Country Club of Wilmington, uh, Wilmington Country Club in Delaware, which is going to have the uh, – the, the, uh, the BMW FedEx. So you'll be, uh, you'll really be big time because you'll be on national TV <laughs> with, with the tour. Yeah. Yeah. Right it's up. been, uh, it's been quite a journey. I've been very fortunate and blessed to have uh, a number of great projects and a lot of great teams working together to, to create these, uh, these fun places. You've got a reputation already as something of a, an archivist and a historian, or at least a historical collector of incredible detail. I've seen your plans um, with um, Superintendent Bob Becker at Scioto for, uh, I mean, it looked like a museum collection that you had put together. Tell us a little bit about how you, how you work, and I gather you're a one-man band as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, I have a few folks that help me kind of on the edges. Uh, certainly appreciate their support, but you know when <clears throat> when I you know start a relationship with a club, I really try to pour myself into the club's history. It, it in being around the game for over 20 years now, and doing this in some form or fashion for 20 years, I started to see where there was a great disconnect between um, kind of the um, original vision and renovation work. Let's call it a couple decades ago where it was a lot more about painting your own vision onto a property versus respecting what was there. And I think we saw post-war, you know, new reign supreme over reverence for the past. And when I started pouring myself into these club histories, I started to see things that were so unique. And it really allowed me to, to understand that the beauty of the golden age really was about the architects of that time using what was given to them instead of imposing their will on the property, meaning that they weren't moving copious amounts of dirt. They weren't doing uh, drastic things to create their vision. They were using the ground that they had to create fun and interesting golf. And I think that allows the game to have such great variety when you do that. And so looking at club histories, it just, it sucks me in. If I'm not careful, I'll, uh, I'll find myself up late at night studying, looking at, at different things. Um, you know, drawings, articles. I love the uh, USG Green Section Archive. You find some really interesting perspective on the past. Uh, There's an article, I think it was Inverness Club, where they talked about how they rebuilt greens in, in the 20s and 30s, you know, leading into the, the early events they had. And some of their methods and means, it was so interesting to see how pure and raw they were, but how we still use some of the same technology today. Uh, so, yeah, I can't get enough of the history. 
So when you're doing a course um, like Sayota, Sayota's had an interesting history, obviously. It's a Donald Ross design. It's not clear exactly what happened between the design and the implementation. It certainly evolved. It had uh, incredible proliferation of center line bunkers. Um, then it got uh, modernized and deformed. And, um, you know, in the 60s, Dick Wilson and his gang uh, raised the whole thing. The elevations changed. Uh, and then it was worked by Hertzson and Nicholas. And you're in an environment where uh, Nicholas's home course and uh, you're doing the work there instead of him. Tell us how that went about in terms of your relationship with the superintendent, uh, Bob Becker, and the groundwork that he provides there. Yeah, uh, Bob and his staff are amazing. Um, his passion to make Sauda the best it can be and work with and for the membership to create an amazing golf experience is, uh, is one of a kind. In fact, uh, the guys yesterday, they, they're, a lot of his staff are actually laying sod during our project now and doing a lot of uh, hard work to help push the vision forward. Um, you know, Bob was instr instrumental in helping locate some of the club history along with some of the members uh, there on the board and green committee. Uh, and the green committee chair there, Chris Brooks, and the historian Scott Miller, they were great resources throughout uh, to provide information. As far as my relationship with the club and how that came to be, you know, they were investigating the potential to return the golf course to what it looked like. I really say the 1926 Open is a great point in time. It, it blends Ross's vision for the property, probably some of George Sargent, some of his influence certainly seems to be a part of it, uh, who was a longtime professional, worked at a lot of great clubs uh, around the U.S. and certainly had an impact. And then it seems like after the 31 Ryder Cup, which certainly had some implication with the depression and the changes to the golf course there, you know, post-war, post-World War II, the golf course was a little bit of a shell of itself, but it was the course that Nicholas grew up playing and the course that produced, you know, arguably the world's greatest golfer. And in conversations with the club, it was like, you know, this is part of your history. It's a lot of one-of-a-kind things when you look at that historical documentation, utilize the property in very interesting ways. Um, in, in the process, actually speaking with Mr. Nicholas and understanding his thoughts about the property and the course he grew up playing, he had a lot of tremendous stories about um, you know, some of the putts he made as a kid growing up there and some of the qualities of the golf course that made him the, the player that he is. Um, so that, that was interesting. I just think the the vision of returning to that, that 1926, 1931 kind of feel for the property was a little different than, than what Mr. Nicholas and his team tends to do really well, which is creating, you know, the, um, very unique and inspired, you know, more modern design stuff, uh, than some of that more historical work. And, um, you know, it's amazing working through that project, the amount of dirt that we actually found that was certainly brought in from the state house uh, parking garage to raise the greens in the 60s uh, with Dick Wilson and Joe Lee. And uh, we found our fair share of, of interesting things, that's for sure. Have you ever had a project where a cartoon image in a local newspaper was the clearest, uh, the, what they call the dodo bird perspective, which was an aerial uh, depiction uh, for the 26 Open. I gather that was, uh, you, I mean, you had a lot of ground photography, but that was actually a fairly 
fruitful document, wasn't it? It is phenomenal, Brad. Yeah. So this great document that was put together by a famous cartoonist leading into the 26 Open and then actually adjusted a little bit for the 31 Ryder Cup uh, is our sole document, a guiding document. And when I spoke to the club, I talked about, you know, you really deserve going back to this because there are so many unique things on this dodo bird drawing. And the first question is, well, how do we know that was accurate? Well, given technology, I was able to take Google Earth and kind of adjust the perspective to try to gain an aerial image that was very similar to the cartoon that you speak of. And then I actually overlaid the cartoon onto the existing golf course as it sits today. And it was stunning to see how accurate it was in its relationships from hole to hole. So that, that's in fact what I'm using. That cartoon is in large part what I'm using to, to help bring back uh, that original vision. So it, it's interesting in terms of the technological resources, because for a long period of time, as you uh, indicated, architects were doing modernization in the 60s, 70s, 80s even, with little regard for the historical record. But now that te technology includes um, not just the aerial, I mean, uh, the, does LIDAR help in terms of kind of depicting the layers of the uh, you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so LIDAR is basically uh, flown uh, laser radar, I guess, <laughs> you know, it's very, it maybe way more technical than that, but light detecting radar that helps paint a picture of what's happening on the ground. And it's a very efficient way to survey a surface. And I use it almost exclusively club to club. Now, sometimes we still fly, traditionally fly topography uh, as we have in the past or do field run stuff, but the LIDAR information is great in that it helps really paint the picture of the highs and lows, some of the dramatic slopes. And then it can help um, showcase some remnants that might be left on property uh, where you see old bunker landforms at Oak Hill. Um, you can still see so. those old bunker landforms and things, uh, a lot of them covered by trees. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a great tool. Well, at Oak Hill, you could go into the woods and call and find these ghost bunkers. Uh, at Scioto, as I understand it, because I've seen some of the aerials from the uh, the work. Uh, for those who don't know, it Governor Rhodes of Ohio, who's a member at Scioto, was building a parking lot under the state capitol, and excavated. I think it was four hundred thousand yards of material and trucked it out to the golf course, and they raised all the fairway bunkers by about four feet, and the greens and everything else by about seven, eight feet. So you know that there was, and I know you've studied that very carefully, there was, there was clear evidence of what, what else you could call a tampering, uh, but the green surfaces are, have completely changed over the years. How did you uh, um, restore green surfaces as well? That's, that's a, you know, normally you get Scott Poole or somebody to do the, uh, the scanning and you can get it within, you know, one-tenth of one inch of 1% there. How did you uh, sure. do the greens at Scioto? Yeah, so since we only had this cartoon to kind of go off of how the, the golf course presented itself, we had some aerials, you know, some vertical aerials, uh, a few perspectives kind of from a helicopter or airplane view, you know, a, kind of an oblique angle. Uh, but really the putting surfaces were the major piece that we did not have good information on. So we found in the Ryder Cup program, they had actually taken a picture of every green and included it in that program in 1931. So I tried to study those as much as I could, but the interesting thing, some of them were not directly aimed at the green. They were maybe off to one side or the other. So trying to piece together how these greens worked uh, was a struggle. And so a lot of the contours and elevations, I'm kind of 
creating based on that information the best I can. And then uh, my understanding of Ross and some of his principles and the kinds of holes that are out on the property. Um, some are very clear, like ocean waves, which I, I know you know, Brad, the fifth hole, is a, there's a great picture of that green that has a number of different tiers and different waves. That they're not very linear. They're, they're very organic. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a great picture of that. So that we restored very much to the picture. And then there are greens like 12, where I had a picture off to the side, and I kind of saw there was a high in the middle and a little lower in the back and lower in the front. And then we just kind of interpolated the best we could. I've always had this pet theory that at every golf course, the signature hole is the one that's least characteristic. Uh, 17th at Scioto, which the members for years loved as a shot over the short part three, well, medium length part three over the water of a creek in front, a diagonal. That's actually a complete transformation of the original. And I gather you were able to convince the club to go back to the original short drop shot. Tell us about that. That's yeah. a fascinating kind of a reversal of... Thanks. Yes, it was. Um, it took a lot of time and effort and discussion, and um, there was a lot of reverence for the old 17th or the previous version of the 17th. In that, that shot across the water was very dramatic, and I, I would say that green was quite a bit different from some of the others on property. It, it when you lined up a lot of the other Dick Wilson greens or some repetition in bunker placement, just that modern golf front left, front right kind of guarding bunker and narrow approach. The 17th hole didn't have that necessarily. You know, it looked and felt like the rest of the golf course, but it was different. And I felt like that was something the members were kind of holding on to. We actually approved the plan with a version, uh, tried to create a Donald Ross version um, on the other side of the water where the previous version was. And the project was approved and we were headed in that direction. And last July 4th, actually, I woke up in the morning. I was away with my family. I uh, woke up that morning and, and said to myself, I really need to, to try one more time to convince the membership that we need to put back the original hole, this short part three kind of drop shot, as you mentioned. This is what you do on vacation? That's what I do on vacation. Yeah, I've got, I've got an illness. Ask, ask my wife. Um, yeah, so I wrote a three-page letter with some additional documentation to the membership, started with the Green Committee, then the board, and then the overall membership, and asked them to reconsider. And we just put that green back uh, the way it was originally envisioned uh, from that 26 uh, drawing. And for me, it was the power of playing a shot of short distance where you think, as a golfer, that you can be successful. you got a wedge or nine iron in your hand. You think, hey, I can hit this shot, right? And it's all before you, but the drop in elevation, the potential of whatever wind direction there is, and the trouble that's around that small target starts to get in your head. And then it's that combination of success versus fear. And I just think there's great power in it. And when you read about the history of the golf hole, uh, there's some great publicity about it between 26 and 31. And in fact, in 26, it says the only hole shortened on the entire golf course for the U.S. Open was the 17th to 135. And I just think that's an important shot to have included uh, in the round of golf. Well, it's also fascinating because it's such a change of pace. You've just come off a stretch from 13 on where you're hitting your approach shots of all 200 yards or more. Uh, very demanding. You face a, a probably a 480-yard 18th coming off. And then all of a sudden there's this little twitchy half shot that you uh, complete change of rhythm. It's a beautiful 
concept, isn't it? Yeah, and the 14th hole, which is the other part three on the back nine now is 250 plus, you know, real long club in your hand. And then to have uh, play 15, 16, um, and then have that shot before the 18th, you're absolutely right. It just really adds to the character of the round. Uh, for those joining us uh, midstream, I'm, I'm with the golf course architect, Andrew Green. This is Brad Klein for TurfNet, the renovation report. And uh, take a quick break here and thank our sponsors, Golf Preservation, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. The Capillary Bunker System keeps bunker moisture at optimal levels to eliminate washouts, soil contamination, plugged ball lies, and other bunker maintenance and playability problems. The patented capillary bunker system not only rapidly drains rain from storms, but also moves moisture back up to the bunker sand through capillary action as needed during drier weather. Capillary bunkers last longer, average a three-year payback, and provide better, more consistent player experiences, all with a 10-year performance guarantee. For more information, visit capillarybunkers.com. Introducing Genesis RX, a line of comprehensive fertility and soil amendment solutions specifically designed for airification, construction, renovation, sodding, sprigging, and seeding. These blends represent the most comprehensive fertilizers the Andersons have ever produced, offering single product solutions designed to simplify fertility and save time in application. To learn more, visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash turf. From fairway and greens drainage to full-scale renovation work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind of knowing the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Since 2005, Golf Preservations has meticulously installed over 500 miles of drainage pipe on more than 300 golf courses nationwide, always keeping disruption of play to a minimum. Visit GolfPreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to speak with us about your next drainage or renovation project. Back to Andrew Green. Andrew, you uh, were obviously involved in the golf industry for, for many years before you became known for the work at, um, at Inverness, really, uh, in 2017, 2018. That's now going to be this week the, uh, the home of the Solheim Cup. Now, that's a very different golf course than has been uh, re seen on TV over the last 40, 50 years, going back. Uh, to the changes by the Fazios in uh, 1979 for that U.S. Open. Tell us about your uh, the, the, um, the, the work there. It's pretty complicated, both politically and technically, and I gather you worked pretty closely with uh, Superintendent John Zimmers on that? Yes, yeah. John and his team have been uh, invaluable in the presentation of the golf course, and I can't wait for the ladies, uh, the, the American team and the European team to, to come there and, and try their hand at uh, Inverness. Yeah, so the project really there started as a discussion of how to restore the bunkers, how to make the bunkers better. When I showed up, it was kind of a failed experiment of using fine fescue on the faces 
And if you can imagine anything, uh, you know, the fine fescue on, um, I guess, highly sand-induced faces that are steep sloped and south facing really cause a lot of issues. And so the, the bunkers, especially south facing slopes were really in disrepair and it just wasn't working for the club. So there was a huge discussion about how do they uh, address that bunker issue. In the conversation about the bunkers and walking the property, I, I don't know how or why, but it just seemed logical to think about how to reintroduce some of the original golf holes that were lost in the 70s? And was there a way to make the golf course feel more complete, more whole by doing that? And there was a piece of property to the south side of the golf course that was in corn when I looked at it. Uh, it was owned by the club and being leased to a farmer. And there was a really an amazing ability to recreate a number of the golf holes that were lost on that piece of ground. And I presented that as part of my interview. And then um, through the process and in, in that the membership fell in love with it and we, we headed down that path. And so we built, uh, we moved the second green back a hundred yards. We built a new third hole, a new fourth hole, a new fifth hole, a new irrigation pond and a new green for the eighth hole. And so all of that work was done while the golf course was being played. And, uh, we utilized a, a temporary hole in the routing to the short game area. And we did some very creative things uh, to make that work. And then we completed the work kind of in the off season, connected the pieces and opened the golf course for play. But John and, and his team did some amazing work to make that all happen. To think about growing in new golf holes, bringing a new irrigation pond online and doing all this work around play while maintaining the golf course at a high level. Yeah, it was a, a lot of lot to work through. Well, I gather professional collegiality prevents you from naming things, and I can be a little more, uh, what's the word, specific here to those who may not know the history, but briefly, Inverness uh, was essentially, as we know it, routed by Donald Ross and was home to the uh, U.S. Open in um, uh, 1920 and 1931. Then uh, Tillinghast tweaked it, Dick Wilson, and then um, – Prior to the 79 Open, George and Tom Fazio were asked by the USGA to look at some congested areas and some short holes, and they ended up basically uh, building an entirely new, to unpack what was a fairly tight uh, routing. They built, I think, three new holes and then shift and combined the others. And from the outset, those holes just didn't fit. Uh, because you had the modern technology and big bulldozers working with um, old-fashioned kind of craggy little um, holes that sat in, in hollows. And, in, um, and uh, the, the clubs basically spent 40 years trying to make those holes work and they never really fit. Everybody knew it and it was, uh, it was no secret and it was a source of uh, real uh, contention in the club as well. And um, that's now undone. So um, the golf course that we'll see next week, tell us a little bit about the kind of challenges that the women will face and um, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. That, yeah. Yep. So I think one of the first things to understand is they're actually swapping the ninth and the 18th hole. I don't know if you know that, but uh, the 18th hole, traditional 18th hole for the members will actually be the ninth hole uh, during the Solheim Cup. The idea there is that they wanted to make sure they got that hole into the rotation. You know, some matches not going completely 18 holes. Um, the interesting thing with the routing is it works very seamlessly. You come off the eighth hole, you get right to the 18th tee sure. and play it and it works just fine. 
but that that is a change to the the routing of the course. Um, I'm really excited about the match play nature of this event and the options and the go no go opportunities that the players will have. And I think based on some of the T placement and hole locations, there'll be a lot of excitement on places where you're playing competitors might be aggressive and try to hit a shot. And if they accomplish it, you'll be forced to hit a similar shot versus, you know, taking a more conservative route or playing safe. And the topography really lends itself to some of that. So some of those highs and lows, you can be very aggressive uh, depending on T placement, um, you know, how much you want to challenge different topography and, uh, and what that results in. So really a, looking forward to that. Give us an example of one of the holes that plays to that um, yeah. strategy. Yeah, so even the first hole to a certain extent, I'm not sure if the, you know how far forward they'll play it. And if some ladies can get over, there's a hill uh, that you can play over potentially. You can also do that a little bit on the 10th hole. Um, the With fourth a creek, hole. Uh, there's a creek in front there too, isn't there? That's so correct, will, yes. Will they be able to carry the creek or many of them will lay back? I don't believe, I don't believe they'll be able to carry the creek. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. I don't believe so. Again, it depends on their key placement. I'm not sure exactly what yardage they hit, they're going to have it set up to be. Uh, the new fourth hole will be interesting because the there's a creek that kind of bisects that hole. If they play a more forward tee, there's a chance to actually drive it over that creek and potentially get it up in the approach. There's a chance to even play it way short and have it almost be drivable. I, I don't know if they'll take advantage of that or not. Uh, but there's a very key fairway bunker on the right-hand side that you really have to think about. And you either have to lay short of it or play beyond it or land your ball so that it cascades past it. So there's a lot of thought on that tee shot for sure. Um, there's some angles of play on the seventh hole. It's a, a great par four, no bunkers. Uh, but the angle of the creek and the fairway uh, provide opportunity to really cut off some great distance with a great drive that takes on the challenge of that creek versus playing away from it. Uh, so there are a number of opportunities where, where you have that uh, mental challenge. Um, do you yourself, you, you've got a, a long history with the McDonald and Sons, I gather. Is that right? And what was your role there and how has that, I mean, do you operate equipment, for example? Do you shape yourself? Yeah, yeah so I, I spent 14 years with McDonald and Sons and Chip McDonald taught me a great deal about this business and wouldn't trade a minute of that time. I think uh, learning the value of the lines you draw on a piece of paper out in the dirt is invaluable, knowing what uh, dirt can and can't do. And then from an equipment operation standpoint, I, I can run all the pieces of equipment in shape. I, I don't do it every day, all day. So certainly there, there's some very highly skilled folks that help me uh, get to where we're going. But like at Scioto and uh, even at Inverness to a certain extent, you know, getting on the dozer to kind of get the green concepts in place and then letting the crew take it a step further to get it cleaned up and really looking like something is kind of my general process. Um, I'll help out uh, shaping, you know, bunker edges, uh, mounds and things, mainly to get the, the crew headed in the direction or try to get inside of my head. Uh, but there's so many different things that are part of the job. I try not to get uh, caught up in just one piece of it. Um, to what extent is your design work um, drawn on paper as opposed to uh, innovated in the field? I think, you know, there's been a big shift in the industry from essentially uh, heavily documented drawings that are handed over to a shaper versus to a construction company versus more of a design build that we see with people like Gil Hans and 
Cor Crenshaw and Tom Doak. Um, where do you stand in that? That not not your opinion, but your practice. Where does your practice? Sure. And, yeah. and what what's the relationship between what you draw and what's what you see and what's done out there? So yeah, no offense or any impact to any other process of any other person. The way I do it is I spend a bunch of time on the drawing itself, uh, and with the historical resource resources that I have for some of these projects. Uh, like right now, I'm staring at four different computer screens here in my office. I can put up images on all these different monitors and then be able to draw and think through the way the pieces fit together. And then I'm using the heck out of my drawing. Um, I'll, I'll use GPS to lay out the way I've drawn it because I put the time in on the front end to get it on the ground and then I massage it. And, uh, you know, I'd be lying if I said I build it exactly the way it's drawn because certainly when you get in the field, you do make adjustments, but I do rely on, on the drawing that I put together. Um, I think it provides a lot of value if you put the time in on the front side, it's better for budgeting purposes. You know what you're gonna be doing. You have a good vision for that. It's more efficient in the actual work. Um, you know, being able to move from piece to piece and know what you're going to be accomplishing. And then it, it's a great starting point to when you get in the field uh, to then massage. And so, you know, it's a balance of it, but I certainly rely on uh, on the drawing on the front end. And I assume that those draw. do you do CAD or do you do hand drawings? So I, I do a lot of CAD, um, mainly because it's a, a workflow thing, meaning that I can go from CAD to Photoshop or whatever rendering software I might use. And then it, it easily translates to engineering firms that provide so much great impact with permitting. You know, permitting is such a big part of this game anymore that they need it all in CAD anyways. So it, you know, helps streamline that process. Um, and then I do a lot of work with my tablet, with my iPad, with sketching things in the field. So if, if I'm not able to shape something or personally Put something on the ground with a machine. I'll often take a picture of an area where a bunker is going or green or take a drone picture and then I'll actually sketch on that my vision of what I'm shooting for and, and that allows it all to be brought together. When you're working with contractors, I assume most of your jobs, uh, since you've heavily documented it and you've done the volumetric analysis, uh, a lot of these are going out to competitive bid by uh, contractors. Is that right? Yes. And do, yeah. you, do you then, uh, how do you work with the shapers to show them? Because a construction company has built 29 projects for 16 different architects over the last three years. And they're trying to finish as fast as possible. And here's an Andrew Green's project at Congressional or Oak Hill, or, which has to look like it's one place and not somewhere else. Where, how do you communicate with them in that? Yeah, so it, absolutely, no doubt about it. When you start a new job, you're going to get whatever the last job that crew came off of. There's no doubt. So whatever their last project was, the first bunker, no matter what you've drawn, what you flagged, what you sketched, you're probably getting a, a version of whatever they did last. Um, so I always think the first hole or two are so important to get on a, a firm setting um, I kind of set the precedent with my construction partners that those are going to be the holes that I'm most anxious about, and it's going to take a little bit of time to make sure that we get them right. Um, and it's it's just a process, you know. Um, sometimes when I hop on a machine, I'm sure I, I potentially tweak or upset the the guy that's trying to get my vision right. 
but I'm really just trying to do it to help to try to formulate and show, you know, the direction that I'm headed. And, and I'm really, really trying to be very site specific with my work where I'm not boilerplating anything. So even if it's a Ross course from one to the next, you know, we're going to go from Scioto to Wana Moisit here soon, work with Mark Daniels up there in Rhode Island. And those bunkers will be totally different uh, between the two. And a lot of that has to do with the, the way they're originally done. Uh, the, the higher sand flashing at Wana Moisit versus the more traditional grass face at Scioto. Uh, it's interesting, Inverness. I just realized uh, Inverness held the PG uh, the Open twenty and thirty one, and Juan Moisset I think held the PGA. It was in thirty one. They might have held an earlier one. Yeah. Well. yeah so the crazy thing, totally crazy, is uh, thirty one Open at Inverness, thirty one Ryder Cup at Scioto, and thirty one PGA Championship at Juan Moisset. Yeah. There's your logo, nineteen thirty one. I tell you, the Ryder Cup logo from thirty one at Scioto is one of my favorites. It's really cool with the uh Union Jack. I think it's the Union Jack and the, the American flag kind of put together. It's pretty cool. Do you uh, so I've already uh contributed to pigeonholing you as a restoration specialist. Uh have you done uh, entirely new courses under your name? And would you are you looking to do that as well? Yeah, I haven't had that uh, an opportunity yet as far as just full bore, you know, start from scratch routing and, and uh, new course. Now, certainly the, the work I did at Congressional uh, with Pete Went and, and that project, there's a lot of originality there, but the, the routing and the ground and things were are certainly in place. Um, yeah, it interests me, but I'm, I'm having so much fun working on these great places and I think some people would say, look, restoration seems kind of boring and, and lack, there's a lack of creativity because you're just kind of, um, you know, trying to replicate or repurpose the past. In my mind, it's so interesting to think through uh, some of the original work and then how does it formulate or translate to the modern game? And so, you know, creatively and from a design challenge standpoint, I, I get a great joy out of it. So I, I'm not... It, I just really enjoy, and as cliche as it sounds, good work with good people. That's all I'm really striving for. You're busy these days, and um, is there a risk of becoming too busy or losing control, or how do you handle that complexity of workflow management? Because you've got to be in the field, you're doing historical research, you're at the uh, um, the archives. Um, yeah, yeah. How many how many Andrew Greens are there out there? <laughs> Yeah, but look, I ask myself that question sometimes, but uh, and I think it's been well stated by a number of of others that have gone down this path of sure. you know staying small is hard. But I, I'm really committed to try to to do that. Um, you know, really trying to work out. You know, if, if there are clubs I can't do planning for, at least I'll start consulting until I can do planning, and then you know produce a, a larger project a little further down the road. But uh, yeah. I, at this point, I, I don't want to give up any of the creative work of what I'm doing. Uh, it doesn't make much sense to me, and I, I don't want to water down what I'm doing. And I'm having such a great time doing it, even though I'm busy and, and on the run. Um, it, it's such a great joy. It, it's it's not really work, Brad. But you know, it's interesting. I just realized that one of the interesting things about restoration work of existing facilities is that scheduling long term is actually easier because they can manage their budgets. They can uh, the permitting issues are not complicated. 
as opposed to a new project where you're dealing with so many uncertainties and you know the project could be put on hold for four years or all of a sudden they get a permit that they have to start construction within a year so actually it's easier to control the, the next five years workflow doing what you're doing yeah that's, that's a good point and it's in the way the market is right now you know all of my clients i, I tell them you know we need at least 18 months if not 24 months of just pure planning after we have the plan in stage we need that time to secure uh, build or partner, uh, get the permits, and get all the materials lined up. Well, uh, Andrew Green, I want to thank you for your time. Um, this is Brad Klein, TurfNet Renovation Reports, and we also want to thank our sponsors for this conversation, uh, Golf Preservation, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. Andrew, I look forward to uh, getting back to Inverness, to seeing it, and um, I have to say I'm, I'm having trouble scheduling the pace of seeing your work. So I can't imagine what it's like actually doing it. But I think the whole industry is curious and interested and we'll see more of that, I guess, at Oak Hill for the upcoming PGA and uh, Congressional will probably get on some sort of championship rota again as well. So thank you for your time and thank you for your devotion to the craft. I appreciate it, Brad. Thanks so much. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.